A few weeks ago, uh, uh, I had a, a, a member come up to me who's been part of a church, this church for some time and say, how come nobody ever teaches on, on Romans chapter 14 and dealing with our differences? And, um, and uh, I had that same question. And so we're going to look at that in Romans chapter 14 and 15, as I mentioned in this, in this short series. And then after that, we're going to immerse ourselves in the book of Micah. The book of Micah. And um, that will probably be uh, happening here in June uh, as uh, April is full. And May, Lord willing, we'll finish this series here. But uh, looking forward to getting uh, into the Old Testament as well. I like to alternate testaments as we go through books. And I haven't gone through a book since the book of Luke for a while. As we've kind of been dealing with some, some, uh, some expositions and topics here um, related to, our, to, the, to the health of our church. Uh, but looking forward to uh, getting an, uh, immersed in a book of the Bible, the book of Micah. I want to share something uh, uh, with you here. And the, the, this is not a, uh, a subject in an area where um, uh, I, 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 people who like to remove themselves from... Um, pot shots uh, would, would delve into... Uh, I will make nobody happy. The Word of God makes nobody happy uh, in, in the Word of God except people who are spirit-filled. And uh, there will be people on both sides uh, who will be uncomfortable. And um, Romans 14, God did not give us His Word to make us comfortable. He gave us His Word to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, which many times is uncomfortable. And uh, I, I, I trust that God uses His Word here to sharpen uh, two groups of, of people uh, that may be represented in our congregation. Let me read out some, 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 some topics and some issues that uh, Christians have tended to have different opinions on over the years. Sunday as the Sabbath, as a day of rest. Our entertainment choices. Words that are acceptable and, and not acceptable. Our dress, how we're to dress. Specific applications of that dress. By the way, all these things are, are linked to principles, alright? Um, but I'm talking about applications of principles. Believe it or not, different opinions about smoking and drinking. Money. Is debt allowable? Is borrowing allowable? Giving. Holidays. Are there some holidays that Christians are not to celebrate? Are there holidays Christians can celebrate redemptively? Birth control. Natural or unnatural means. How many children should you have? Parenting styles. This is the way you parent. No, this is the way you parent. Educational choices for your children. Homeschooling is the only way to go. Christian school is the only place you should have your children, not the public school. And other opinions. By the way, I'm not saying all these are my opinions. I'm just telling you opinions are out there. Relationships. 
courting, dating, dorting. Church gatherings. Music. Bible translations. Politics. Our responsibility to the environment. Tattoos. Insurance. Etc. As we approach this passage here, we need to make sure we approach it in the way that doesn't say, I want to hear what I want to hear. And I'm going to club the other person with it. But we need to let God tell us what He wants to tell us. The love for others is rooted in the God's love that He saved us out of. It is out of our salvation that we love others. There's something the Gospel creates. In the Ten Commandments, we kind of see two divisions. We see our vertical relationship, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then the rest of the commandments, how to love our neighbor in light of that. And Jesus said that the Ten Commandments hang on those two commandments, didn't he? Through God's love for us, our love for God and love for our neighbors is the flow. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. That great commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, is something that is strewn and, and, it, is, and it is threaded all the way from Genesis to Revelation. From beginning to end of the Bible, the call of the Bible to the people of God is the call to love. We're to serve God with gladness as His redeemed people, and we're to serve others with delight. And that's our joy. It is what God has defined as what it means to be truly made in His image. Also, what you could see in the Bible from beginning to end is that God is a missionary God. Everybody has fallen short of His glory. So He wants the message of His righteousness revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ, to go out to everyone. Even in selecting one nation from out of the many in Genesis, Israel, His plan was that that nation would further the mission by being a light to all the nations. That purpose underlines what Paul's purpose in Romans is. And in Romans chapter 14 through really um, uh, the end of the, of, of the, of the book here, um, uh, the, Paul uh, gives instructions on interpersonal relationships within the church because even this is an aspect of God's work, His mission. In chapter 15, and, uh, he really uh, unfolds here with the motives and means of gospel mission in Paul's life and ministry. Because the church, remember what Jesus said in John, By this shall they know that you're my disciples, if you what? So, loving one another is connected to the mission of God. The lighthouse, the community. 
And the church living in loving unity, which Jesus prayed for the night before he died, is a witness to the unbelieving world. And, and here in Romans 14 specifically, Jews and Gentiles reconciled in the gospel is a powerful testimony of people who will die to themselves and their preferences to live to the uniting power of grace. And so, I don't have the time to read the whole chapter here. But I can walk you through some of the highlights in Romans chapter 14. In verses 1 through 3 of Romans 14, Paul tells a specific audience. He says in verse 1, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. Well, so who is he writing to? Those who are not weak in the faith. Okay, so that's who he's writing to. Alright? In verses 1 through 3, he tells the weak in the faith and the strong in the faith to welcome those who may disagree with you. Now, there are things that we all have to, disagree, have to agree on, the essentials. But there are things, as some of them I have even listed here this morning, that we can disagree on and have different opinions on. In verse 3 and 4, Paul makes the point that freedom, the strong brother, must not look down on those who are stricter. He also makes the point that the strict must not be judgmental toward those who are strong in the faith and exercise their freedom. At the end of verse 3 and also verse 4, he talks about what judging does. We're not to judge in these areas. Now, 1 Corinthians 5 tells us we are to judge each other. Because there was a man who was living with his stepmother, and the church was not discerning that and judging it. But in the areas that uh, are not clearly taught in Scripture, we are not to judge one another, is Paul's point here. In verse 5, each believer needs to be fully convinced of their position and their own conscience. Their conscience. What is a conscience? Well, a conscience uh, is not always right. Uh, a conscience can be strong, a conscience can be weak. Um, uh, we'll, we'll get into this in, in more detail here as we, as we study the chapter, but today I'm just trying to give you an overview. In verses 6 through 9, the doing, participating in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a freedom or refraining from that must be for God's glory. Verses 10 through 12, don't judge because we will all be judged and it's by Christ, not each other here ultimately. Verses 13 through 15, those of you who are strong in the faith, your freedom is correct, but don't let your freedom destroy the faith of the weaker brother. You do not have to refrain from everything, but you do have to refrain from spiritual harm to another. And verses 16 through 21, uh, disagreements about... Preferences and opinions are not important in the big picture in the kingdom, but building up is. In verse 22a, if you have freedom, don't flaunt it. If you feel you don't have that freedom, don't police others. In 22b through 23, train your conscience to be under the lordship of Christ, because there is great blessing there. And then in 15, 1 through 6, uh, put others first like Christ did. And verse 7, bring glory to God as we welcome another, each other as Christ also welcomed us. I share that survey there because um, 
Christians have been set free from the law of ordinances. Romans 6.14 says we are under grace. We are free to allow our spirit-informed consciences in matters on which the Bible is silent. Alright? So that's what I'm talking about. Matters uh, that uh, the Bible uh, does not explicitly talk about here. And here in the, the book of Romans, there are questions of... Um, uh, of diet, there are questions of days that they should celebrate uh, for ceremonial reasons. And Paul wants Christians to be honored and our neighbors to be loved. So while we are free to do that which is not sin, we are also free to exercise, we are not free, excuse me, to exercise liberty in a way that does not edify or serve our brothers and sisters. There's another passage that deals with differences, and it's in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. And it comes from another perspective, kind of flips things the other way. But in in Romans chapter 14, God has given us an ingenious, I mean, that's kind of a a, a weak word to use even. But he, he has given us the answer to deal with differences. Now, In this section of scripture, chapter 14, verse 1, and chapter 15, verse 7, are like the bookends, alright? And everything is sandwiched in between. But we want to look closely at the bookends here. Romans 14, verse 1 says, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, welcome ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Now look at chapter 15, verse 7. Wherefore, receive ye, or you all, receive one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Accept, receive. So, Paul here is dealing with attitudes between uh, two different groups here. And in between 14.1 and 15.7, he's talking about the obstacles to accepting. Some of you are judging others God has accepted, Paul said. And here's what should happen. And so believers should accept one another, according to 15, 1 through 7, because God has accepted them. And if God, the holy God, has accepted them and brought them into the faith, who are we to not accept them? So God has accepted them, so we build each other up in unity and praise to God. Now again, he's not talking about issues of sin here. He's talking about different Opinions on perhaps some of the even uh, uh, contemporary things that I shared with you with you today. Different opinions on on some of those issues. And so, chapter fifteen, verses one through seven, is where all this is pushing to the goal. The goal. You need to understand that. That's where that's where a spirit filled life in the church uh, needs to look like. Chapter fifteen, one through seven. We're all going to come to different conclusions, aren't we? That, the, that, uh, that uh, on areas of Scripture is not explicitly clear on. And people, if you don't believe this, you need to go to different countries. All right? You need to visit other places uh, around the world because people from different cultures have different customs. Um, in the 1990s, I had an opportunity to go with my, my father and evangelist Steve Pettit to, to Siberia. 
And, um, and I didn't because I was selfish and wanted to just hang out with my friends in high school. And so I missed that opportunity. But I remember my dad coming back and saying that uh, one of the things that, that the Russian church um, uh, that, was, 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 uh, that they, they saw was right and wrong or important to them was, was not to have any jewelry. They thought that having any jewelry uh, was, was bringing attention to yourself and, uh, and it was not a lack of humility. And so if you had jewelry on... Um, then, then you, you know, you, you were, you were, you were in sin. It's one of the issues there that they were dealing with, and so just about all of us this morning would be looked down on uh, by the, those Russian brothers and sisters in, in, in that in that day and age. I don't know if it's still the same. All right, but you can see they had a different opinion uh, uh, about that. They didn't think there was uh, there it was right to have jewelry, uh, even a wedding ring. And um, so my dad was stubborn. He kept his wedding ring on. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't budge on that one. My dad doesn't wear any jewelry anyway besides that. But, um, uh, but we're going to come to different conclusions, all right? And uh, they had a verse they could, they could hang it on. Uh, but their application to it um, is a different application that obviously we have today here in this room in Maine this morning. Uh, when I went, was in Jamaica, you could see very clearly that they had different things and different things they had prioritized. I thought were uh, 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 different conclusions that I come to in Scripture than I would have. I'm not talking about clear things. I'm talking about some of the unclear things all right, in Scripture. Um, and I think missionaries um, uh, have a good sense of this. They can understand some of these things. Um, better than 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 uh, us who have you know been in a certain culture in a certain place or a certain church our, you know our whole lives or etc. Um, you you start to see oh I don't know about I don't know why I made that so important or this so important anyway. Now we all know this in our heads, don't we? But living it out is the weak part, according to Romans chapter fourteen. And I want us to see two things here this morning in Romans chapter 14. I want us to see our responsibility. I want us to see our responsibility. We have a gospel-driven responsibility to welcome one another. There in that first verse in Romans chapter 14 verse 1 and and also in chapter 15 verse 7, there's a word that he says here translated... uh, uh, receive, receive. It's a rich word. It's a very rich word. It it, it means less. If you, if you just think receive in a cold clinical way, you're going to miss the point. Receive means welcome. It means to accept um, uh, into a group. It means to accept into fellowship as brother and sister. It means uh, loving them as yourself. And there's two places in the book of Acts where this word is used that lends a little insight into the, the tenderness and warmth of this word. And you'll find it in Acts chapter 18, verse 26. Acts chapter 18, verse 26. There's a man named Apollos, and this man is, is skilled and able to, to explain the word of God. But he's missing some parts here. And so a couple, Aquila and Priscilla, take him aside and, 
and, and they show him uh, some of the more fuller revelation in the new covenant in Christ. And in Acts chapter 18 and verse 26, it says, And he, Apollos, began to speak boldly in a synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them. That, is, that, that phrase there, took him unto them, is the same single Greek word receive here in, in Romans chapter 14, verse 1. They took him unto him. All right? There is, a, there is a closeness. There's a care there. And expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. All right? It's also used at the end of Acts, in Acts chapter 28. Verse 2, where Paul has a shipwreck there on the island of Malta, and uh, the, the people, the village islanders there, take care of Paul. It says, And the barbarous, Acts 22, and the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire, and there's the word again, and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. It's not like they said, okay, welcome to our island, now stay out of our village. They brought them into the fire, they cared for them. So that's the, that's the word that's used in Romans chapter 14, uh, receive, receive ye, welcome. And it's the word that's used in chapter 15 and verse 7. Wherefore, receive you one another, welcome one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Oh, why is that our responsibility to warmly welcome? Because of the gospel. Remember what he says in Romans 15, 7, as Christ has welcomed, accepted, received you. Okay. As Christ also received us to the glory of God. Uh, because of verse 3 of Romans 14. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. All right. The gospel. What God has done to receive us is through the work of Christ. The gospel is our basis for our foundation for acting with gracious acceptance to believers who have different applications than you have. And if you don't think that's an issue, folks, there's always going to be someone stricter than you with a stricter application. And on the other hand, there will always be somebody with a more loose application. Right? I don't care where you are on the spectrum. So we're always going to have differences. We're always going to have different opinions about things here. There's always going to be believers with different applications than we have. And where our differences lie in non-essentials, we are to accept each other. Chapter 15, verse 6 says, That ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So, what's the purpose of all this? Bring glory to God. We say we have a church to bring glory to God. That's why we exist. Well, Romans 14 tells us that in, a, in, in very mundane ways, we can bring glory to God. Okay. Now, <clears throat> who, uh, who, 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 is it? Who, who is he speaking to? Well, in chapter 15, verse 7, he's speaking to everybody in the church. In chapter 14, 1, he's speaking to the stronger brother because he's telling him how to accept the weaker brother. But who are these weak in faith? Who are these weak in faith? 
What is the problem that is at stake in Rome? Paul addresses problems, issues here. He gives them doctrine. He gives them practical application in order to, 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 uh, to fill this out. What are the issues here? Well, the weak in faith are not people who are barely believers. All right? Like they're just getting in here. All right? But they're people who uh, are, uh, are weak in faith regarding certain activities. Chapter 20, uh, 14, verse 22 and 23 says, Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is, the man, happy is he that condemneth not himself in the thing which he alloweth. And if he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So there are things that they could feel they could not participate in, be a part of here. And Harry Ironsides, uh, several decades ago, writes, The weak in faith are those whose um, uninstructed consciences cause them to be unstable in, in as the things indifferent. And they are not to be judged for their questionings or doubtful thoughts. They can tend to be skeptical, doubtful, tend to uh, shrink back to, toward their comfort zone. They aren't to be looked on coldly or judged, but received in their over-scrupulous thinking. All right, that's, a, that's how he defines it. Um, so, the ability to understand uh, uh, their, their consciences are, are very tender. and, and uh, they're, they're, Now, understand the conscience is not totally identical to the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, Holy Spirit can use your conscience. But I can feel guilty because, and this is not me, I'm not a hunter. All right. But let's say every opening day in hunting season, I get up early and, 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 and I'm out there hunting. And one day I decide I'm just going to sleep in. All right. I'm not going to go on opening day. It's crowded anyway. And, and uh, you know, who knows what will happen out there. Uh, so I don't go. But I feel guilty when I wake up because I go all the time. This is the first year I haven't gone. Am I sinning? No. No. I've trained. You can train your conscience, all right? Your conscience can be, your conscience, your mind needs to be in accord with Scripture. And yes, you can have a conscience that is more strict than God. Some of you don't believe that. (laughs) That's why Paul had to address people very harshly in Galatians. All right? They were doing things they thought was right, but was wrong. Their conscience is not in accord with God's mind. It can also go the other way, can't it? All right? But uh, uh, um, John Phillips writes about the weaker brother is that one of the difficulties is that the problem is aggravated by the fact that the weaker brother often thinks he is the strongest, stronger brother. And he tends to be the one who abstains from certain things, judges by appearances, and fails to distinguish between the outward act and the inward attitude. He can tend to conclude that because a person does something that he disagrees with, that person's motives must be wrong. All right, Maybe those might be some tendencies of those who are the, described as the weak in faith. Um, and then you have people who are called the strong in faith. All right? And, uh, and some believe they're perfectly justified in an area that is not taught in Scripture to t- participate in. Um, verse 5. Paul says, One man esteemeth one day above another, and another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. One of the issues is in verse 2. For one believeth he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. 
Um, there are two tensions in this particular situation. There's a tension about food, and there's a tension about certain days they were to celebrate. Who are these people? Who are these weak in faith? Well, um, Paul disagrees with the weak in faith in verse five uh, uh, later on in the chapter. But they are probably in this in this context here. It, we tend to believe they are probably Jewish believers who've been brought up under Old Testament law. Maybe there were certain foods that they thought, I don't know if I can participate in that. But Jesus says in, in, in Mark chapter 7, verse 18, that it's not what goes into your belly that, that, that corrupts you. Um, some of them were so used to being commanded. You were celebrating the feast days as an Israelite was a command. You were supposed to celebrate these feast days. And now Jesus fulfills these feast days. And, and some of them still felt that they needed to celebrate these feast days. Uh, perhaps one of the issues was um, they had always been used to uh, worshiping on the Sabbath on Saturday. And now the early church is worshiping on the first day of the week. Uh, and and uh, they, they saw that as an issue. But... Paul says, it's not an issue. Um, verse 5, one man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike, but every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Um, here's the issue here. The early church was a lot closer. They mingled a lot more. They saw each other a lot more. They ate over at each other's houses probably a lot more. Probably one of the things they had in their gatherings was a feast weekly altogether. And so these issues would tend to come up more in their life together. And so you have those who, Paul says, are strong in faith and those who are weak in faith. But in chapter 15, verse 8 and 9, Jew and Gentile, Jesus brings these people into one. So chapter 14 is all about how you can be one. Chapter 15, verse 8 and 9 says... Um, now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing it in thy name and so Paul is saying here we, this is a purpose here God has brought you and, and Gentile together God has brought these people into one and, and you will have people who are struggling with the freedom that God gave them uh, and then you have the strong who say, I have the Bible on my side. They say, don't you understand the Bible gives us permission? And Harry Ironsides writes, speaking of the uh, stronger brother's relationship to the weaker brother, he said, the stronger brother is to walk charitably toward those who have less light than himself. There's a tension on each. God doesn't just say, alright, just get rid of these people and be alright. Just get rid of these people and be alright. Love has to bend. Has to bend both ways. In chapter 14, 1, at the end, he says, um, Him that is weak in faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Not to doubtful disputations. Receive, but what he's saying is, don't receive and, and start arguments. Is really what he's saying here. Alright? Stronger brother, don't be arrogant in your strength and passing judgment on their convictions. Well, you know, Pharisees, or whatever, right? Stronger brother, your goal is not to win an argument, all right? But it is to show love to those who have different opinions, to seek peace, 
And as I said before, there's always going to be someone with stricter opinions than you who look at you as a liberal. And there will always be people who uh, are going to be uh, more liberal than you looking to you and seeing you as the, as the, as the, you know, the, the tight one. But we're to love one another against our feelings. We're to love out of humility. We're to love in a way that creates community. We're to love in a way that invites the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be alive in our midst. We're to love by dying to ourselves and seeing Jesus' church through his eyes. And I'm going to close here with a story about a man who did this faithfully. His name is John Fawcett. John Fawcett. He got saved at the age of 15 when a guy rode into his town on a horse and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ from John 3 about uh, the serpent being lifted up in the tree and telling those in his village to look to Jesus. And that that evangelist's name was George Whitfield in England. And John Fawcett says, As long as life remains, I shall remember both the text and the and sermon. He went to John, uh, George Whitfield at the end of that, and uh, he felt God was calling him to ministry. In three years, he served as an apprentice there in training for ministry, and he, he was aware he had a new master. He had a light. He had a, he had a liberty. There was a hope at, the end, of his, at, at, at uh, the end of his life of a dark tunnel through the gospel. And the Bible became alive to him. And he joined a small group which worshipped in private homes in a village called Bradford. At the age of 18, he marries a girl five years older than him, uh, than himself, and they serve the, the Jesus together. In 1763, there's a group of believers in a little village called Wansgate which has been described as a few straggling houses on a bald hill. It was a pretty uh, meager place. And they asked him to be their pastor. And there was very little to be pastor of. Uh, It was a small, dark, and damp chapel. Um, No furnishings. They had a few stools there to sit on. And he accepted an invitation. He was ordained to the ministry there. Um... There was no place for them to live, so they actually lived uh, with some of the church people there for a time. We would squeeze them in. John Fawcett had a salary of less than $200 a year. Um, the church offered a 25% raise if he would be able to take it in wool and potatoes. He preached for years there, and... Uh, There's a church in London, Carter's Lane Baptist Church. Their pastor, Dr. Gill, was uh, growing old, and so they're looking for a candidate to fill that position. And the John, who had been in a very humble situation for so long, that seemed like the chance of a lifetime. And so he journeys to... London and he candidates there and, and preaches the word of God and, and uh, they call him to be the pastor of their church at Carter's Lane Baptist Church in prestigious London. It's announced at Waynesgate that their pastor there is leaving to go to this church in London and uh, the, the congregation is, is just, they're just torn apart. They really don't think anybody can fill his place. But they set arrangements forward, the date's set, finally the farewell day comes, and uh, he preaches his farewell sermon, there are many tears, their belongings are loaded onto uh, some wagons for the trip to London, the last box of books is loaded onto the wagon, 
His children now are in their places, and John and Mary begin their last rounds of goodbyes, and most of the congregation is there, and they're, they're weeping, and, and, and uh, John's wife Mary, she's absolutely overcome by the grief of the flock, and John and Mary sit down in a packing case there on their wagon, and they just weep, they just break. And Mary says, oh John, John, I cannot bear this, I know not how to go. Nor I either, says John, nor will we go. Unload the wagons and put everything in the place it was before. And the pastor decides to stay there after all. And what is such a horrid day turns into be a day of joy and laughter. And he sends a letter to the church in London explaining the situation. And that next Sunday at his little church, he preaches from Luke twelve fifteen that a man's life consisteth not... And the abundance of things which he possesseth. He talks about his experience. And he finishes his sermon with a poem that he had written at midnight the night before the occasion. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. And in the third stanza of that, which you have in your insert, it's not our hymn book. Third stanza says, We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. It's after that that even more than ever, John Fawcett feeds and guards his flock. They build a new building later on to seat 600 people, just a few miles from Waynescape. He opens a, a, a school for neighborhood children. They had no school. A training school for preachers. He writes, he writes one essay that becomes a favorite of King George III called An Essay on Anger. And a, uh, George, uh, King George III um, said it was the best benefit he, he ever received uh, from any preacher there. Fifty-four years he stays there at Waynesgate and then at their new building there just a few miles away, Herbden Bridge in Yorkshire. And uh, 1816, um, he's nearing his end. And he knows that he really only has one more service with these people. It's in a service. And he knows his days are coming soon. And he reads from... Joshua 23:14 I am this day going the way of all the earth. And he dies very shortly after. Seventy-eight years there. Because here is a man who understood unselfish love. The mark of a spirit-filled life. And God worked remarkably in his life through that. It's humbling. It's encouraging. It's challenging. It's called a vigilance here in our body. To love one another unselfishly. So not only do we have a gospel-driven responsibility, we have a gospel-driven refocus to humbly honor one another. And that's what Romans 14 through 15, 7 is going to tell us to do as we look into it in the next um, several weeks. Let's pray.